The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Artificiality from Helen and Dave Edwards. Artificiality is dedicated to understanding the emerging collective experiences we humans are having with AI and our fellow humans. Our work is grounded in the sciences of artificial intelligence, collective intelligence, complexity, neuroscience, and psychology, and framed through the lens of design, philosophy, and systems thinking. We're on this learning journey too, so we strive to find the frontiers, to ask the best questions, and to stay curious. We hope to open minds and empower people to experience our complex age in new creative ways. To gain the full artificiality experience, please subscribe at artificiality.substack.com to receive our full publication of audio, video, and written content. Please check out our work as Sonder Studio at getsonder.com and reach out with any comments or questions via email at hello at getsonder.com. Welcome back to Artificiality. We're happy to have you here. Today, we're here to talk about um, our essay on synthesis. So, Helen, tell me what inspired you to write this essay? Two things. Uh, one, as we think about creativity in, uh, with generative AI, we've got to think about what it is that, um, that humans do that, that machines still can't do very well. And I think, um, you know, the, after last week's creativity essay, thinking th- about that a little bit more deeply and coming to the sort of that, that insight that, um, yeah, it still is about synthesis. You know, it's something that we do that um, is just so profoundly human and that synthesis happens with other people. It's the push and pull of an idea, the push and pull on values, push and pull on debate. And the second thing was um, something I read this week that said that uh, OpenAI expects to have AGI by the end of this year or something like that, GPT 4.5, GPT 5. And, you know, we're back to this question of, well, what the hell is this thing, AGI? Is it just a multimodal model that can see and maybe hear and eventually, you know, have some sort of proxy for taste? What is it? And when it's actually, at the moment, about language. And um, it took me back to a book I read a few years ago, which uh, is a profoundly good read, um, called The Master and His Emissary about, uh, by Ian McGilchrist, who's a psychiatrist in the UK. And um, it's, it, it, it's a fantastic book about the difference between the left and the right brain the first half of the book is is about um, the brain, our brains, and the way the left is different from the right. Uh, and the second half of the book is about the sort of tracing the development of of essentially the, the sort of Western world and Western scholarship and values, art, science, 
um, with a very with a through the lens of what, what was valued, things that the left brain is good at, or things that the right brain is good at, with sort of a warning to humanity that if you overemphasize left brain capabilities, you end up with a, a world that's devoid of color and meaning and social connection and 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 our ability to create values as a society. And it sort of struck me that um, there's a there's a real parallel here, and um, that so let's talk about that. That that was the inspiration is to sort of think about AGI through this lens of what are we valuing in intelligence and an in artificial general intelligence versus what do we value in our natural intelligence. You start the essay with a story about child and grains of sand, um, and you use that as a way to describe differences between um, human left and right brains, or at least a view of that difference. Yeah, and it's such a wonderful so story, isn't it? Walk, walk us through that. Yeah, so imagine this, dear listeners. Um, a, a, a child's building up a pile of sand. We, we've done this, right? We sit at mm. the beach. We remember this as children. We, rem we watch our own children do it. And you, you build it up, but at what point do, do you decide that the Grain that you've got enough grains that these grains have gone are now a heap. They're not just grains of sand; they're actually a heap. And this decision isn't straightforward, and it's because there's two different things happening at the same time. So there's one process that's a self-contained system. You're building the sand heap analytically, you know, and it's really precise, and uh, you, you sort of one step at a time and that it's asking, this process asks what number of grains makes a heap, but that accuracy, you can't step outside the confines of that process without sacrificing accuracy. You, you, and so what, what's the, the analytical optimization of this many grains make a heap? But then on the other hand, you've got another process that's happening at the same time, which is sort of operating externally. And observing the sand heap and questioning its context, its purpose, its potential interest. You know, it's a it's a it's a heap when it's on the beach if it's this big, but it's if it's in a construction yard, a heap is bigger somehow, right? You can't describe exactly how, but you know it. You know that's the truth. And um, this process is accepting that kind of ambiguity. A ambiguity is just part of life. And it sees this this heap, it, it emerges. There's this sudden sort of shift in perception. And, and in this story, the child suddenly understands that the growing pile of sand has suddenly become a heap. It's, it's, a, it's a decision, it's a judgment, but it's context-laden and you can never really quite analytically say suddenly mm. it's a heap. You can't take one grain off and say, not a heap now. And... Um, I, I, what's fascinating to me about this uh, about this process is that about these two processes that our minds just seamlessly integrate these two. It, it just happens. We we understand that. And uh, and Ian McGilchrist points out that that it's the left brain directing that first process, while the right brain manages the second. And even though we have these differing thought processes. Our brains unify this experience into one conscious self. You don't dis, you, sometimes there's a, there's a, some sort of sense of cognitive dissonance. When I pointed this out to you that this is happening at the same time, I saw your eyes cross slightly. You know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> I 
hadn't thought about it that way, but now you point it out. You know, it's one of those moments. Um, it's it, it's this idea that uh, that part of our special intelligence, our general intelligence, is that um, our brains aren't just tools for you know making sense of things or predicting things. They actually construct our reality for us. That that process of okay, it's a heap. That 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 is a reality that is constructed within us, and that is happening all of the time. And we're constantly trading off um, what we need to do for ourselves, our own focus on our on our own bodies and space, our 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 need to maintain homeostasis, our need to, like, what do we need? We're constantly trading that off with um, our connection to something larger and our existence through others, our, our constructing our reality as a, as a, if you like, kind of a heap of people, if you like. Um, it's like the self is formed with this association. Um, when you start thinking about intelligence through that lens – and then you look at a, 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 a conversation like um, AGI is suddenly going to appear to us because we have a multimodal model. You look at it and go, hang on a minute, that just doesn't add up. Hmm. Um, and so it, it's almost like we're starting to, to, as we build this AGI, we're starting to sort of contrast it with what it is that we really value in our own intelligence. And the this idea that there's a left and a right brain constantly sort of feeding into each other with the left being very kind of AI-like precision, operating inside its own system, um, ha having uh, very strong skills around language but not necessarily understanding that context and meaning. Just a nice parallel. So if I may, let's set aside the question of AGI because I think that... Um, it's so ill-defined or it's defined in so many different ways that we're sort of, um, I'm finding it difficult to even say whether this is AGI or not because it's, it just depends on what the definition of AGI is. If, you, if your definition is a model that can work across modes, then fine. You know, that, that's not going to be, that, that doesn't surprise me that it will happen soon. It's already sort of happening. If it doesn't happen at the model level, it happens at the application level, which is actually what we're experiencing anyway. But Let's set that aside because the, because the grand view, the sort of conflict about whether AGI will happen this year or not is more about the, what you mean by AGI, right, than, than not. What I'm finding intriguing about this, this sort of question of left and right brain is sort of draws back to our conversation with T. Nguyen, right, around what you can metrify what you can mathematize in the world. And I'm going to generalize some of, his, some of the points that we talked about with him. Because you think about it, you say, okay, what is, if I'm going to take one grain of sand and I'm going to then get to a heap, well, what's the number that makes a heap? And I think you're totally dead on that what makes a heap is different based on the context. A heap to a small child might be smaller than a heap to a, an adult, a, a heap on the on the beach versus a heap, as you say, in a construction yard. There isn't an exact number, but we know it when we see it, even if we don't all collectively agree, and that's okay, that you could say, well, that's not quite a heap, you know, and but that one's definitely a heap, you know. We all have our own view, though, of has it passed that, 
and it is now defined by that word. And we're sitting here now in this world of age, of, of generative AI generating words that sound very human-like and probably would write quite interestingly about what a heap of sand is. But it's if it was to look at an image in this multimodal aspect and say, is that a heap? It's going to have some... Is it, does it, is it possible for it to have a concept that says, yes, that's a heap, in a way that we think of it, where we have a, yes, it's, it is a, it's meeting that definitional threshold without it having an equation, where it can look at the heap, it can calculate how many grains of sand are probably in that 3D structure that it sees in the image based on the difference, and it's going to calculate how many grains, and then it goes, yes, is it above or below the number of grains to define that as a heap? Check, right? Like... Is it possible? Well, that point. Well, see, what's interesting about that when you describe that? Of course, it's a, it's a perfect, but it's also a ridiculous example. Of course, a ridiculous but a perfect example, um, because what it comes down to is you sit there. It's not just context. It's not just okay in a construction yard. A rule, you know, the heap is different. It's actually the what it really comes down to is the math of of of. of it's a value equation. Sure. Because take it out of being about sand and heaps and what have you, and put it into something that is. Um, uh, it, you know, so maybe a little bit less tangible. You know, it's maybe it's love, mm. and what's love versus not love. Um, that depends on um, so many factors around how you uh, the, the network of value. You mm. know, the values that are in that process in that decision. And I think we, you're right to point out T Nguyen's work because it does kind of come back to how you even calculate the value. Mm. And um, the thing that, that is so, I think, interesting about McGill, McGillchrist's work that is so such an interesting sort of crossover into AI is that the right brain is, the, is in charge. And there's this idea that uh, this, the social context, the fact we were able to transcend humans transcended just the vagaries of natural selection and competition and, and survival of the fittest to construct our own values, to construct our own communities and um, collective, our collective. And that the right brain guides that because the right brain is able to say, here's a heap that I value. Mm. And um, there's a question mark for me that came as I was thinking through this metaphor, and, well, we've built in a left brain with AI. That, that, that could be great. I mean, it is great. But there's this question mark, what would a right brain look like and is that what we want to build? Do we want to build something that is uh, subservient to us as the synthesizers, where we, where humans synthesise the output and all of the other things that are going on, and we keep AI safely and more in that left brain. Or is there more value, what's the cost benefit, of actually thinking about it as um, much more of a synthesizing engine for us? And I think that's an open question, technically, philosophically, the whole works. But there's also a, um, a choice to make about uh, that becomes much starker when you realize that there is a choice to make about whether AI is going to provide us with more um, cognitive support for that 
collective synthesizing process with other humans or it's not. So we come back again to this idea of how do we avoid collective stupidity with machines in our communities um, because everything just happens so much faster at different at, 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 at scales. So we've got to worry about that. I find that a really intriguing question. I don't know if I have any strong intuitions, um, certainly not with current designs. Perhaps I'll make it into a wish, not whether question nice. for There's you. a nudge for you. Uh, it's a nudge from our book, Make Better Decisions, which you can purchase on Amazon <laughs> uh, and your local bookstore. Uh, the, um, which is a question about whether it's, if it's possible for an AI to be aware of um, our right brain activities and values um, or the value of our right brain without trying to participate so I'm thinking, um, think about our human experience that uh, if we are engaging our empathetic, you know, skills, we sometimes can empathize with someone else and, and, and try to see the world from their perspective. But also, in some ways, the, one of the more powerful parts of empathy is understanding when you have a gap. I don't really know what it would be like to be that person in this situation. But I understand that and I can internalize the fact that I don't understand. So random story from the news, Taylor Swift has this you know, extraordinary tour and then the news comes out that she, she tipped every one of her truck drivers. There's like 50 truck drivers, which first, first of all, <laughs> pause for a moment, that she requires 50 trucks for this tour. That struck me as a big number. But she tipped each one of them two different stories. One is that they were all tipped $100,000 and the other one was $200,000. Now, it's extraordinary generous. It's like an order of magnitude or more than most truck drivers get tipped for a tour, or it's like two orders of magnitude in some cases, right? It's it's, it's extraordinary amount of money. Um, now, Taylor clearly understands that that's valuable to those people, but could she really truly understand how life-changing that is? You know, the stories come out, the head of the trucking company is like, look, these people don't have, um, most of them are renting homes. They don't have enough money to make a down payment, and now, after driving on this tour, they'll be able to make a down payment on a house. There's something truly different. So that that heap of money, right, $100,000, means totally different things to the person who gave it versus the person who received it. Neither one of them would truly understand what it was like to, to be the other with looking at that heap of money. Yes, I'm making a comparison of the heap of sand. You know, that I've heap just of got money. an image of a heap of money. I can I know, get it out of my that's head. That's a lot of money, right? <laughs> so, but and 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 no one truly, you wouldn't understand it. That's our right brain, you know, understanding what that heap means to us, but also that we each have our own um, right brain experience of that heap, and the power is knowing that it is of value to someone else, while also understanding you're never gonna really understand their own true experience. Now, could an AI have something that's sort of analogous to that? Could it be possible that an AI learns that there's these concepts like heap, pile, there's, there's um, values like lots, small, big, you know. Fortune. That mean very different things in context, which includes very different things from to an individual in a particular context. So two individuals, five individuals can have five different experiences in the same context. 
So it's possible for AI to understand that. But I worry that um, I'm, I'm imagining, you know, um, a, a computational effect inside of an AI that maybe is possible, but I worry that I haven't really heard anybody in the AI space thinking in this way. To be able to cleave these ideas, these words, these concepts as being things that can be analyzed versus things that are only right brain, you know, experiences, not something that can be analyzed in a mathematical sense. Well, the, and then you, then you sort of get to some of the, the, the really big topics, which we'll come to eventually in artificiality. But what you described in some ways was a, um, was it how, going back to how our brains produce this single conscious experience and that your conscious experience is, um, it shifts as you told that story. It's a, a it's sort of uh, curiosity, feeling that feeling of, of questioning, a little bit of envy, <laughs> maybe quite a lot. Um, <laughs> that a, a a lot of feelings that come along for the ride with that definition of of heap of a heap mm -hmm. of money, and I think um, that's where uh, that's where I pause the essay, <laughs> if you like, because um, the 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 right left brain. Uh, one of the reasons I think that the the McGill Chris book is so interesting is he does a lot to go out of the folk definitions of left and right brain, and into sort of the more technical things that are going on um, between the right and the left brain that make uh, it so important for thinking about these la large language models because. Um, the way the left brain uh, uh, processes language looks so much more like this closed system of a of a large language model that is then um, supervised, if you like. It's subservient to this to the right brain that it has so much more social context, trying to create meaning around whatever's happening. And it's um, I'd, I'd really recommend this book to readers. Um, it, it is just such an interesting way of thinking about how we um, process meaning ourselves and uh, how what's what may be going on underneath some of this conscious experience. It gives a, a very interesting way of considering how we um, view the world and how our minds make this make reality for us and create our conscious experiences without having to get into the technical discussions around um, sort of current theories of consciousness, which can be kind of confusing to if you haven't if you haven't gone into them in depth. It's a pretty specialist area. But it, and it's very it's very grounded. It's not a um, it's not a, a conversation that's um, that's that's densely philosophical. So it's it's and he's the second half of the book just brings this so alive with our culture, and that's really what I found so sort of inst inspirational as a metaphor, because you can see it's another way of seeing how um, over promising AI is a is a really bad idea, and 
because there's so much else that goes on that we take for granted, that we don't even see. It's so obvious it's in front of us. And we only start looking for it, we only start analysing it when AI can't do it. Hmm. And when it comes to moving into this world of creating meaning, creating our own realities, living in the physical world and making judgments and decisions about what something is or isn't based on so many more factors than just what the AI can see within its graph of images and and text, we need to come at it from the other direction as well and not just and try and pull out some of these more obvi- these obvious things that we overlook and value them before the machines start trying to put them into math. And that's been the role of philosophy for a long time. But I think it's very interesting to put it right next to AI. I do too, and I find my, my mind wandering a little bit to the um, thinking about how we work with people to incorporate generative AI into their work, right? So um, for those who haven't figured this out, we do work with corporates on things like decision-making with generative AI and problem-solving with generative AI. And if you think about that, you, you, the promise of the, 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 the sort of marketing shtick about generative AI is that you can ask it a question and it'll give you the answer. We'll go do this. It'll, you can then give it, now we've seen these advances where suddenly everybody's excited because you get to say, ooh, you know, I'm, a, I'm a teacher, I'm a marketing manager, I'm a, I'm a data analyst, and this is what I'm trying to accomplish, and so help me do this. And it's, it's quite helpful. But there's a part of the answer that takes quite a lot of knowledge and nuance to not only understand the AI to be able to make value out of that, of that answer, but to be able to understand ourselves and the context in great depth. So you could, I was looking through and comparing the uh, recent earnings announcements from Apple and Amazon and what are they saying about AI and how is that gonna affect their company and their outcome. And you can think of common language in an earnings announcement. This was high growth, this was successful, da da da. Similar words that mean different things to different companies in different contexts. You know, is this high growth in a high growth overall economy, high growth when there's a recession? Is it successful based on whatever the benchmark was? You start thinking through how we use these common words and how these common words don't just mean different things, whether you're a teacher or a marketing manager, they mean a different thing based on whether you're, what, what subject you're teaching, what school system you're in, what your background is, like all of those, the context of the individual you means that the language that you're using with the chat system is different for you. But the chat system is aggregating some sort of answer based on some grand training data set, not about you in particular. And so I'm finding it to be, this essay to be quite formative in terms of stopping and recognizing where we have a quite profound gap in terms of understanding how to interact with these systems because they lack so much of what is important to us in our right brain. Yeah, it gave me a, 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 this is, we've always said that AI doesn't understand context and then we've had to fuzzy that a little bit because the language models, they, they give you an appearance they understand context. They definitely have some sort of, that, that 
analogical reasoning, a little bit of conceptual reasoning. You know, you can see it sort of forming. But if you, I'm going to interrupt you and say, this is one of those great examples. It understands context, says person A. Well, okay, it understood like one, two, three examples of context. It does not understand context according to person B, meaning grandly all context, right? Like, so the word itself means different things. Well, context has become the ultimate context word. (laughs) I mean, it's like we we have that wonderful slide in one of our presentations where it shows you crane in in the different um, parts of the graph. Crane as in a construction crane, crane as in a bird. Now, it understands context as in a crane is a piece of construction equipment, a crane is... A creature it understands that, but it doesn't understand um, the full context. It doesn't have a feeling that you know. I have a very different feeling when I think of a crane versus a crane. A crane. You know, that that and in different that parts, catches fish in different parts of the world. You might have very different context too because you don't understand English. But also, there aren't cranes everywhere in yeah. the world like the birds. So it would be kind of a crazy thing. Yeah, and so I think it's the, the, what has done what. What it shifted for me is just the slight sort of nudge in perspective about um, how I use these tools. And it, it doesn't actually necessarily change how I use it per se, but I've become consciously aware of what happens when I reject something from ChatGPT. It's like, uh, it, it's, not, it's not just that that wasn't a useful suggestion or that I already thought of it or it's not applicable in this situation. It's a deeper um, discrimination. It's a, it's a, no, that is not meaningful because I'm trying to synthesize. I'm trying to create something. I'm trying to create a reality. I'm trying to create something that, that, um, in my, in, in my mind, I judge to be the, the better fit for, for what I'm trying to do. And that sort of elevated it a little bit. It elevated my role to, that synthesizing mind and that's pleasurable and it's challenging and that's what I think a lot of creative work is about so I was left with a sense of caution about let's not run so fast with AGI that we don't understand that um, that we are the synthesizing engines that's what we do because the reality we're creating is for us we're not creating a reality for the machine. We don't want a machine to create a reality for us. I think if you ask that, Adam, you know, unless you're the the one who takes the pill in the matrix, you know, whatever. But you, you, we, we value creating our own realities with others. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for writing this piece. For those of you who haven't read it, please head on over to Substack, artificiality.substack.com, and read the essay. Uh, subscribe there to get um, all of our content and to uh, see what's up in the future. Next up, I believe on our podcast, will be our first returning guest, Michael Bungay-Stanier, who will be joining us to talk about his new book, How to Work with Almost Anyone. Second returning guest. Second returning guest, true. So it uh, he will be. Um, uh, it'd be fascinating to hear him talk about his new book. We did um, chat with him recently when we were in... Uh, Lisbon at the House of Beautiful Business, where we spent quite a lot of time with him talking about this and everything else in life. 
Um, so we'll chat with him about that book and see if he's got any insights about whether they're, what to do when the anyone is an AI. It's always nice to give Michael something a little extra to sort of chew on. Um, and uh, we have a lot of interesting uh, other guests lined up for the fall. I have a great video series um, uh, starting up uh, uh, where we're interviewing more entrepreneurs and innovators in AI. So a lot of new content coming out from artificiality in addition to all of our artificial philosophy thoughts. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please subscribe on Substack or your favorite podcast platform. And please leave a positive rating or comment. Sharing your positive feedback helps us reach more people and connect them with the world's great minds. Seriously, a review on Apple Podcasts is a big deal. And if you like how we think, then contact us about our speaking and workshops and human-centered product design. You can learn more about us at GetSonder.com, and you can contact us at hello at GetSonder.com. You can learn more about making better decisions in our book, Make Better Decisions, How to Improve Your Decision-Making in the Digital Age. The book is an essential guide to practicing the cognitive skills needed for making better decisions in the age of data, algorithms, and AI. Please check it out at mbd.zone, on Amazon, bookshop.org, or place an order through your favorite local bookstore. Stay